1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. I wonder if you realize who you are, not who I am, not who you are personally, but who we are. Self-identity impacts personal conduct profoundly. Who we think we are affects how we behave. So in families, you hear, in our family, we don't behave like that. At schools, there are mottos. I was once at a school where the motto was, to strive is to shine. I was a bit of a letdown, I'm afraid. Uh, regiment, swift and bold, London insurance industry in utmost good faith, the academy served to lead. Who we are impacts profoundly personal conduct, self-identity affects behavior. We say that of nations, don't we? The Swiss, precision and politeness, the French, flair and finesse, the Germans, order and obedience, Americans, industry and enterprise, Italians, passion, I once said to a group of French people sitting down here uh, at St. Helens just after the Sunday morning congregation, well, how would you characterize the English? We would prefer not to speak about that before lunch, they replied. But it operates the other way around, doesn't it? How we behave does demonstrate who we think we are. And the key issue that dominates chapter 5 and chapter 6 of this letter to Corinth is that of identity. Last week, the refusal of the church to exercise proper discipline within the church shows they have the wrong view of themselves. This week, litigious behavior, taking one another to court, shows they have the wrong view of themselves. Next week, sexual immorality. Don't you realize who we are? 
If you like a key verse that really sets up this week and next, it's there in verse 11. As such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice it's a past tense. As such were some of you. This is what you used to be. You've changed. Or rather, should I say, you've been changed. Uh, You've been washed. You've been set apart. That's what sanctified means. Set apart by God for his special use. Justified. God's final verdict over your life has already been pronounced in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the work of God the Father, he planned it. It's the work of God the Son, he worked it out through his death on the cross. It's the work of God the Holy Spirit, he imprints it upon you today. Do you realize who we are? You hear somebody say, oh, well, I like to go to church on a Sunday morning, it just gets it out of the way and I can get on with the rest. Don't you realize what's going on here? This is a supernatural group. Don't you realize where we're going? Haven't you yet grasped what God is doing through the gospel as he gathers together his own people for his own use with his glorious inheritance? Haven't you grasped yet what is going on in the church? Who we are? So what's going on in the church? You know, we're not just the golf club or adult education class. We're not NCT or gym membership. We're not the book club or the bike club or the neighborhood residence association. No, we're not the sixth form common room or the staff room or anything as mundane and worldly and everyday as that. This is something profoundly supernatural. Do we understand who we are? Last week, You're not disciplining members who behave in an unchristian way. What's the matter with you? This week, you're taking one another to court. Next week, sexual immorality, don't you realize who you are? The presenting issue of today's passage in 1 Corinthians has to do with dispute resolution. You will have seen that. If somebody wrongs us or defrauds us in the church, if we have what is a perfectly reasonable right to a case against somebody because they've slagged us off in the youth group or whatever it happens to be, how should we respond? Verse one, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? That's the issue. We already know the church in Corinth is divided. Verse one takes it further. The unrighteous refers to those who are not Christian. You dare to go to the law before the unchristians? Saints in the New Testament is never some sort of special group who've had the Pope say something about them. It's all Christian believers. You belong to God. You are made holy. You are a saint. How dare you is very strong. Verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so it seems that members of the divided church in Corinth were taking one another to court. Now, I suspect we find this quite hard to get our head around because we're quite a diverse group. We're scattered. We've come from different neighborhoods. But imagine if we all lived next to each other and we were engaged in business together and your hedge was bigger than my hedge and all of that sort of stuff that goes on out there in the suburbs. And simply from verse 1, we can see that this issue, together with the issue of church discipline from last week, is to do with who we think we are before the unrighteous. 
And straight away, I want to issue some caveats, because all of those with legal heads will be scratching your heads at the moment and saying, come on, William doesn't understand this and Paul doesn't understand that. Paul does not have a downer on the civil law courts. Paul doesn't downplay the ability or responsibility of the law of the land. He's not saying Christians think lawyers, if they're not Christian, are useless. Well, some Christians may think that, but that's not the biblical view. In Acts 16, we find Paul appealing for his legal right to protection. In Acts 25, he appeals to the emperor. Paul does not have a downer on the law courts. Paul does not think the church should set up its own legal system separate from the state. This is not grounds for a form of Sharia law for Christians. In 1 Timothy, he tells us to pray for the officers of the state. In Romans 13, we're told that the officers of the state are put in place by God himself. Jesus tells us to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And Jesus recognizes the authority of Pilate and Herod as the officers of the land. Most importantly, Paul does not think that criminal matters, matters of abuse, should be kept quiet and covered up. A wrong understanding of this chapter has, I suspect, been at the heart of some people's action as they have not reported matters that should be reported or as they have sought to hush things up. We shall see that criminal matters must be taken before the law of the land, with one exception. And we're going to talk a lot about how special the church is. So we better just remind ourselves from verse 9 and 10 that where we came from, the church is not special on account of its own behavior. Remember what you weren't once were, and we were a pretty motley bunch. But verses 7 and 8 do seem to suggest that the matters have to do with some sort of wrong or defrauding of Christian brothers, and we have to assume that whatever the matters are, they're not criminal and against the law of the land. But overlying the whole piece is this question, who do we think we are? And Paul is wanting to say, we're different from the world. We're distinct from the world. We've been set apart from the world. We are highly honored by God, and we should not bring the church into disrepute. Now, really interesting, chapters 5 and 6. So chapters 1 to 4 of 1 Corinthians has to do with establishing gospel ministry in a pagan city. If the gospel is going to be established, chapters 5 and 6 seem to be suggesting establishing gospel identity is key. It's fascinating, isn't it, the steps Paul is taking in a pagan city and a worldly church to bring back order. Recognize the authority of the word, accept the authority of the word, chapters one through four, remember who you are. Let's get into the particular issue, which is this dispute. And verses two and three, your disputes demonstrate your incompetence. Come on, don't you realize who you are? The incompetence of it, verse two. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Immediately, Paul reminds us of the eternal responsibilities of Christians, which will be yours at the end of time and mine. 
Paul's point that Christians will judge the world does not mean that we should all enter the legal profession right now. God forbid. I mean, imagine that. Spare us. Nor is he... We're very grateful for those of you who are lawyers. Thank you very much and all the rest of it. But we don't want a whole church full of lawyers. Paul is referring to the end of time when Jesus returns. Daniel 7 teaches that judgment will be given to the saints. Matthew 19 The 12 disciples would sit on the thrones and judge the tribes of Israel. Revelation 2, the church who endure will be given authority and will reign alongside Christ. The precise nature of how believers will sit in judgment on the world is unclear. People have made various suggestions about how the angels will be judged by the church. Probably they are the fallen angels. The overall point is straightforward enough. You and I are princes and princesses. We've been adopted by no less than King Jesus. He reigns. You've been washed and sanctified and justified. You have an inheritance with him. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for the Lord's treasured possession. He will set us in praise and fame and honor high above all the nations that he has made, Exodus and Deuteronomy. Genesis 1 Adam, the first man, had dominion over the earth. New creation, new humanity will have dominion under Christ over the new creation. Don't you realize who you are? This is very biting for the Corinthians, who we saw a couple of weeks back, think they'd already arrived, already your kings, already you're rich, already you have all you want. Well, they will be kings and be rich and have all they want. But at the moment, Corinthians, your behavior as you take one another to court like this demonstrates you really haven't understood who you are at all. Come on. Once again, Paul is not dissing the state law. He's not downplaying the importance of courts. He's not suggesting the church should establish its own legal system, some kind of Sharia law at St. Helens. But we should take our disagreements and be able to deal with them if they're trivial matters within the church. And the church should be able to sort out its affairs. There's a great deal to say here. Churches should have a complaints procedure. I'm glad that we do. Churches should have clear governance. I'm so glad that there are a group working on and bringing up to date our governance at St. Helens. Have churches been overly lax on these matters of late? I think they have. Don't we realize who we are? Striking that Paul does anticipate that there will be disputes. He's a realist. The point is not that everything should be done internally simply within a small group in the church uh, and that there should be no external point of reference. Rectors must be held to account by somebody. Nor is the point that there should be no reporting of abuse and such like. There absolutely should be. But if we realize who we are, we will up our game. And failures in governance and reporting and compliance and all this sort of stuff, as I've been pondering, they make me think, well, did we realize just how significant the church is? That we need to have our affairs in order and to be able to deal with our affairs, if you see what I mean. Are you incompetent in these matters? 
Not only is it incompetent, it's also shameful if we can't sort out our disputes, verses 3 through 6. Well, 3 through 8. 2a and 2b. We come to the second, do you not know? Do you see it there in verse 3? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? I was thinking of giving this talk, the, the overall title, Wise Up. And in this section, we find what is described by one writer as the most biting sarcasm of the whole letter, verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Disputes in the church taken into the public courts before the pagan world parade the dirty linen of the church before the watching world, verses three through six. Disputes in the church taken into the public court demonstrates the worldly failure of the church, verses seven and eight, three three through six. Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining, pertaining to this life? So if you do have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But if brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Now, once again, Paul is not questioning the ability of the judges of the land to settle matters. What he's saying to the church is, why are you parading your failures before the law of the land? He has in mind the church's reputation. And therefore, we need to be very, very careful indeed. Because I suspect misunderstanding of these verses, careless application of these verses, have caused failure of churches when it comes to matters that ought entirely properly and for the good of the people involved to have been dealt with by criminal courts. Physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, domestic violence, financial abuse, slavery, discrimination. There are laws against such things. And people have turned to verses such as these and assumed that they apply to every matter in the church's life, including criminal matters. And we've already seen that Paul upholds the law of the land and demands that we render to see, Jesus demands that we render to Caesar what is Caesar and that the officers of the state are held in high regard, and that the law of the land is put in place there by God himself. So to report rightly matters of misconduct in the church does not undermine the reputation of the church, quite the reverse. And we've seen that. Any breach of the law should face justice. I can think of only one situation where a church might not report conduct that is in breach of the law of the land, and that is where the law of the land is in defiance of the teaching of Jesus. Should the state pass legislation criminalizing Christian conduct, the state has surpassed its God-given authority, and I, for one, will act in defiance of the law of the land. Should the state criminalize preaching the Christian gospel, then I, for one, will declare myself a criminal. At that point, Christians and churches will operate outside the law. For example, should the state criminalize Christian teaching on gender, sexuality, the call to repentance in the matter of uh, Christian sexual behavior, 
then Christian preachers should go on preaching regardless of the law. But be warned, if you find yourself alone (laughs) as the only Christian in all of England or the only little church defensive with your backs that we and we alone are left, well, then you will probably need to ask some pretty searching questions as to whether perhaps you might have slightly misunderstood things. With that proviso, where something is not a breach of criminal law, where something should not be properly reported to appropriate authorities, surely you can deal with these things amongst yourself, can't you? Surely you're not so worldly as to be incompetent in these matters. Don't you see that your conduct is a discredit to the gospel? The Bema was the place where Issues were decided in in every town. Jesus actually went out to the the, the point of judgment as Pilate uh, passed judgment in front of the whole crowd. And then the Christians are now parading their disagreements on the kind of social media of the Bema rather than dealing with it. The shame of it. It brings the gospel into disrepute. The shame of it. It parades your worldly failure. And verses 7 and 8 appear to suggest that issues do have to do with reputational financial matters. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. The fact that we've got squabbles in this area is evidence of profound worldliness and failure. And the fact that we can't sort them out between two Christians is further evidence of worldliness and failure. And verses 7 and 8 challenge us at the deepest level of our pocket and our reputation. Will we be prepared to be slighted? Will we refrain from legal recourse? Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? This has driven the response of many known to me to slander and defamation over the years. When you know who you are and where you're going, it changes everything. Gordon Fee is mostly helpful in his commentary. He says there is need of deep reformation and a genuine overhaul of our value system in these verses because most legal acts are predicated on rights and pursuit of property. We're so tied to this world, so intent on defending our reputations, so intent on getting what we deserve, clinging to our property, we litigate against the libelous slanderer. Don't you realize who you are? For goodness sake, let it go. Be done with it. Don't resort to the law courts. What about a case where a non-Christian business partner or marriage partner behaves with such godlessness that those previously closely entwined with them need protection by the law of the land? Does this preclude seeking protection from justice entirely? Not at all. Two Christians, you'd hope for mediation before litigation. 
there have been instances here in the city where Christian business partners have had disagreement and one or other has simply walked away. One individual then selling his house in order to downsize because he was confident of who he is in the Lord and the size of his house didn't matter. Does this mean that the Christian will seek mediation before litigation? Surely. Does this mean that two Christians in St. Helens might ask a pair of senior Christians to help them sort out a dispute? I certainly hope so. Does this mean that abuse of any sort should not be reported? Absolutely not. Does this mean that churches should ensure their own complaint procedure are in order? Certainly, yes. Does this mean that where churches do have proper complaints procedures and recourse to just resolutions, we should trust them? Absolutely. And when such trustworthy procedures are put in place, then to go on insisting on my rights because I don't like what the resolution is, is profoundly worldly. Some of the most vocal have such a low view of the church, they have brought the church appallingly into dreadful disrepute in these matters. That brings us to the final point, the denial of it. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that our first-year trainees are studying 1 Corinthians, and Tim Shepard, who leads the student work, is their trainer. And he has spent two or three years working in 1 Corinthians. So as you can imagine, I have been regularly in touch with Tim, asking him whether I might be on the right lines or out on a limb entirely on my own. And I suggested to him earlier this week by text that the Corinthians don't seem to grasp who they are. He responded, thankfully by text, because a long email would have been a pain, he responded that he thought it was slightly more nuanced than that. It usually is. The issue, he said, and this was profoundly helpful, is not simply the exalted status of the church given by God. It is the exalted status of the church given by God as distinct from the world. Don't you realize who you are distinct from the world now? Stop taking one another to the courts of the land, the incompetence of it. Stop taking one another to the courts of the land, the shame of it. Stop taking one another to the courts of the land, the denial of it. Paul's logic in 9 through 11 is that the very godlessness of disputes in verses 7 and 8 and the godless behavior that causes people to go to court, all of it denies the radical transformation that should have come about in the people of God through the gospel. Don't you realize who you are? And the as such were some of you in verse 11 implies and expects transformation. You can see the emphasis on God and his work. You were washed, you were set apart, you were justified. It's there. All three persons of the Trinity are involved. The Father plans it, the Son works it out on the cross, and the Holy Spirit now is dwelt within you, and he has washed you, sanctified you, set you apart, justified you. Uh, don't you realize who you are? 
Don't go on behaving as you used to, is what he's saying. At the 10 o'clock, there's always a children's talk that goes through the passage that the preacher is about to speak on. Jenny Davies had a magnificent illustration of verse 11. She had a little toy truck driver, and it was buried in a mass bowl of porridge and marmite and other filthy things that children wouldn't like, but that were nonetheless edible. They came up and tasted it. There's something buried in here. She took this little individual out and then washed it with one of the children. The Lord has hosed you down. She didn't quite put it like that, but you were washed. And now she put it back in his truck because he's got a special purpose set apart for a particular purpose. You've been set apart to bring glory to God. And the Holy Spirit has declared the final verdict of your life over you already through the work of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You were washed. You were set apart for the glory of God. You were justified by God the Father through the work of God the Son on the cross, imprinted on you by God the Holy Spirit who now dwells within you. Don't you realize who you are? And so the very behavior that continues in the, church, the worldly church of Corinth that gives rise to these disputes is evidence of a profound failure to understand what the church is who we are, God's treasured possession with an inheritance in his new creation. We'll come back to verses 9 to 11 next week, but I hope you begin to see what Paul is demanding in Corinth for us in St. Helens and across any churches that might emerge in our now pagan British nation. First, we need the ministry, the authority of the word, and an acceptance of it. Then we need a proper understanding of what the ministry achieves. God's own people set apart for him. And that will require that we recognize who we are. This is not the golf club. (laughs) This is not like your gym membership Sunday morning. Oh, I'll go to church on a Sunday, get it out of the way, and then I can get on with the fun of the day. No, 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 no. This is God's eternal work that is going on for his glory. Don't you realize who we are? This is where it's at. We have been washed and sanctified and justified for him and for his use. Let's pray together. We pray, our gracious Father in heaven, that you would write the truth of the gospel not only into our own individual understanding but into our understanding of ourselves as your church that we might grasp that we are your treasured possession that your Holy Spirit dwells within us and that we might begin to see our distinction from the world around us to treasure what you've done in us washing us and setting us apart and declaring us righteous in your sight. We pray that these things will become more and more reality for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.